Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. It's the Bob McCowan podcast, a repeat performance. Um, although edited performance. Not a this, full this, show from the this, past, but bits tell and you pieces what, of shows. This is a classic best of because it's the best hockey player in the world it's the best women's hockey player in the world and it's the best hockey coach ever on the best of the bob mccown podcast well all hall of famers to boot gretzky wickenheiser and bowman today on the program uh it's bob mccown it's uh, john shannon on the program uh, for this uh this day um it, it, it's, uh, I, I always read an intro to um, our guest. This one's going to take some time. I don't know if we're going to have time to chat, Haley, so just relax. Uh, 23 years a member of the uh, Canadian national team, four-time Olympic gold medal winner, member of the Hockey Hall of Fame. Oh, it just goes on and on and on. It's blah, not... blah, 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 blah. What else have you done? Come on. What have uh, you done lately? Assistant Director of Player Development for the Toronto Maple Leafs. I mean, Whoa. and Whoa. and I I'm, I I don't know where you're at with your studies now. Uh, we can't call you doctor yet, can we? Or can we? Um, I suppose you you could on I guess officially May twelfth, but I'm done. So yeah, <laughs> May twelfth. Uh, so well, that's not very long. You know, less than a week away. Um, <laughs> and then and then what? What what's the next step for you? Internship. Uh, you call it, it's residency, which is essentially specialized training of what you what you want to do with medicine. And, and, and you know where you're going to go for that? Uh, yeah, I'm going to be doing my residency in Toronto, so I can continue to work with the Leafs and and do my job there and be be at the rink a bit more um, more often. And it's been a it's been a tough year because of uh, every time commuting from Calgary to Toronto, as I as have been doing the last few years with the pandemic every time you want to go into the rink it's an eight-day quarantine so it's been a long it's been a long go yeah and is it is it accurate that you just got your covid shot like uh, a couple of weeks ago recently uh no i got i was i am fully vaccinated but i guess i got my second shot in in mid-march so so let's let's uh, while we're on the topic of vaccination uh, for those people who are watching this show uh you are wearing your um promotional t-shirt to say hey everybody should get vaccinated so here's your platform Haley. go (laughs) yeah well this is our shot i mean many people may be familiar with um what we did with conquer covid uh, you know last year when we needed ppe in this country quite badly so this is sort of uh the second iteration of the the second biggest need in the pandemic right now which is Really, the only way we're we're at, we're going to get out of this is to get um, probably 70, 80 percent of our population plus vaccinated. And so, uh, what it is is, I think people right now are tired of talking to or of listening to politicians and governments. There's been a lot of push and pull and mixed messaging. So we got together with a group of grassroots Canadians, which includes uh, a lot of Canada's top doctors, um, stars like Michael Ren- uh, Mike, uh, Michael Bublé, Ryan Reynolds, Sarah McLaughlin. Um, athletes, Olympic athletes, you know, all sorts of folks. And, uh, and just to, to say this is our shot, that we get one shot to get out of this pandemic, encourage folks to get their vaccines like we've all done, and try to get around uh, some of the myth busting around the vaccines and uh, just provide facts. So we've done one town hall already. And yesterday we partnered with uh, Facebook and Labatt's and some of Canada's top uh, corporations to really expand this even wider um, and get maximum coverage uh, and messages to as many people as we can. So there are there are two there are two lines of thought here. There's 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 the group over here says, well, I'd, I'll, I'd love to get my vaccine, but a, a we're in Canada and we seem to have a, sort of a shortage. That's the perception. Yeah. And there's that other group on the other side. 
they're they're putting elephant dung in my blood. I don't want anything to do with this. So, uh, so how do you how do you address both of those people that are chiming at you? Right. So I think on the first uh, the first side, which is not enough vaccines, I think uh, that has been true. And and in some areas of the country, um, you know, vaccine availability is not equal. Um, we know that in the month of May, there's about seven eight million more doses of vaccine coming into the country. So we think by the end of May, every Canadian should have a chance to get a vaccine if they want one. Um, so that's that's coming. Um, I would just continue to tell people to 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 keep calling or you know wait when your time is up uh, to to kind of call around for the vaccines. Um, but it certainly hasn't been the perfect rollout, that's for sure. Um, on the second uh, group, the anti-vaxxers, um, it's hard because many of the folks that we see in the hospital are are, are unvaccinated. So. You know, we know that the vaccine can really decrease the chance of serious illness like stays in hospital and ICU admissions by a significant amount. Um, and so while they're not perfect and fail proof, um, getting a vaccine is going to really dramatically reduce your risk and everyone else's risk to, um, you know, to, to get really sick. And, and I think, you know, sometimes with folks that you don't want to get a vaccine you can't you can't reason with those those people but all we try to do is is to provide the facts as we know it um, and the research out there which the latest research says getting vaccinated is is a far safer thing to do than not with covid it's intriguing because the united states is encountering a similar problem in the second uh, sense uh, they obviously had many more vaccines available um before canada yeah. And I think there's well, been, they make their own. Well, exactly. So the I think over 300 million people have had uh, or 300 million vaccines have been um, administered in the United States, mm -hmm. ten times more than ten times, yeah. what what Canada has had. But the intriguing thing here, Haley, is that what we are hearing in the U.S. is that it is primarily, not exclusively, but primarily Republicans, who are in that second category of refusing to take the vaccine. Is there, you know, where does that fit politically or economically or socially in Canada? Is there any commonality to the, to the list of people that are saying, I'm not getting the vaccine? Well, I, I, I'm not sure I haven't, I haven't talked to enough to do a poll on it, but I, I know that as of this morning, I just looked at 14.1 million vaccines have been distributed in Canada right now. So um, well, I guess about a third of our population, if, if you have it. And uh, I think a lot of that sentiment, I'm in Alberta. So what I see in Alberta from the anti-vaxxers is that crowd, I think, um, but not to put everyone in, in the same box. I also, you know, I also have like some of my friends and family, some of my teammates text me and say, hey, should, should I get the vaccine? Like, I don't know what to do. And, you know, should I get AstraZeneca? Should I get Pfizer, Moderna? Um, and my comment to people is, the first one that you can get is what you should get right now, mm -hmm. um, just because of the odds. But as far as uh, you know, what what an anti-vaxxer looks like, I think they come in all shapes and sizes right now, to be honest. And uh, you know, if if what I see in the hospital is any indication, but it's certainly the that uh, that type that gets the the media, I think, around it. Well, and I don't I, I don't want to be presumptuous here, but you, you know, you you witness this kind of stuff. Are we wrong to assume that a significant percentage of those who have not been vaccinated and who um, are going to be reluctant to be vaccinated when they have the opportunity are the younger people? Um, we, yeah. we certainly yeah. know that they are the ones who are still gathering, and we understand why. You know, if you're in college or you're in university, you're going to school, you want to that whole experience. Um, they really haven't lived enough of a life, I guess, to understand how serious this might be. Although that even that's kind of a stupid thing to say. But <laughs> but are they are they at the, kind of the top of the list as far as you're concerned? Of those, no, that are I don't think so. Actually, really? I, I think in our research that we've done, with this is our shot. What tends to be where, where the vaccine hesitant groups tend to be, um, sort of different areas. So some of our indigenous population. Uh, the black community, there's a lot of vaccine hesitancy. The South Asian community, uh, you know, in the Peel region, uh, they've done a lot of research and studies on that to show that there's significant vaccine hesitancy. Yes, some of our youth, but quite frankly, I think when we saw AstraZeneca open up their age uh, categories, you saw like people flooded, the under 40s mm -hmm. flooded 
to, to get it. So I haven't, I wouldn't say it, it's youth at all. I think it's different pockets. And I think there's a variety of different reasons for that. I think um, many people uh, in those communities don't consume their media the same way that probably you and I do through sort of mainstream sources. They may look to their own countries for their media, for example. And some of those countries are, are quite frankly anti-vaccine or using vaccines that have less than 50% eff efficacy. So there's that. Um, there's a cultural burden barrier. Um, there's a huge mistrust of government in some of these communities. Um, so there's a lot of factors there that that I think contribute to this. And and that's with this is our shot. I mean, the South Asian uh, vac COVID vaccine has force out there in, in Peel is a group of doctors that have been working at this for months. And they're saying, you know, we need mobile vaccine clinics. We have to take the vaccines to the essential workers in the in the factories. We need to go and do it. And we just saw that out here in Alberta this week, where a group of refugee refugee doctors went to a Cargill meat processing plant and distributed 1,700 vaccines, and it was wildly successful. That to me is the way that we're going to stamp down the numbers in this country, because that's where a lot of the outbreaks have been coming from. It's interesting. You you wonder uh, if. Um... The worst, the worst part of the pandemic right now is, is in India. Yeah. Uh, you wonder if uh, the immigrants from India that live in our country, uh, who are, a lot of them are now Canadian, uh, who, as you say, uh, get their media from India still. Uh, you wonder if the pandemic being as bad as it is there will help assist people here to get the vaccine. Because, it, it, I mean, the, the Indian well, government declared the vaccine. The, the Indian government declared the pandemic over in January. Yeah. Yeah, and I think we all knew that this was coming, um, at least everyone I talked to in medicine, um, just the density in the population of a country like India. And I think Nepal is now spiking, but you know, per capita, the, the worst place in the world right now is actually Alberta. Per capita is actually, our numbers are worse than India. Um, and so, you know, I, I think, it, you know, one of the things that I think I've seen in COVID is that until, people that are hesitant or resistant until they kind of see someone or know someone in their world that has had COVID or has gotten sick, they sometimes have a hard time believing it. And so as devastating as what has happened in India, like we're obviously trying to avoid that here in Canada, but um, you know, I, I, I don't know, I hope it's a wake up call for all of us, just how uh, incredibly transmissible these variants are and how quickly things can go sideways. We're fortunate. We have a health system so far that's held up, but they are just absolutely overwhelmed. Yeah. Why do you think, why do you think Alberta has spiked? Oh gosh, that's a million dollar question. I, there's so many factors. I, I think uh, the way that our, the, the government is first of all handled uh, shutdowns, um, you know, not getting vaccines to those who need it the most. We have, uh, you know, some of the, the plants like Cargill, the meat processing plants up north in Fort McMurray. Grand Prairie is one of the hot spots in North America right now, um, just in terms of sort of oil and gas and the types of those types of communities that they are. I think there is quite a bit of uh, hesitancy or, or resistant uh, resistance. Um, and I don't think our measures have been strong enough. Yesterday, we just shut down schools for two weeks, sent all the kids home from kindergarten to grade 12. And while the, those are very good things that happened, it's it's probably too, it's late, it's late. We're gonna see another few weeks of uh, quite significant spikes here. So uh, there's just, there's so many factors. Yeah, I, I, I wish I could say why, because then we, we could fix it. <laughs> um, I assume that you, you've spent a fair bit of time um, in hospitals, obviously, uh, with your uh, education process. I assume though that you're not working in a COVID ward, is that true? Uh, that is true. Yeah, I don't work on a COVID ward. Um, however, I've been exposed to many, many COVID patients through the through this year. Um, yes. Um, your aspiration is to work in an ER ER room. Is that is that still true? Yeah, I do. Yes, I, I really like emergency medicine. And so in spending a lot of time in my electives um, in medicine, I, I, I chose to do most of those in emergency medicine. So I was in, uh, for example, I was in one of the hospitals that had Ontario's first COVID patient. I think I was there the night that that patient came in. So, wow. um, yeah, so there's been some interesting experiences, you know, even in the family medic medicine clinic, uh, I was in a rural Alberta uh, hospital and I did a, just a routine physical exam on a gentleman 
and found out two weeks later that he was COVID positive at that time. And so I know that the PPE works. I know that masking works and taking those measures works because I otherwise probably would have gotten COVID. I'm intrigued by the, the, the attraction to the ER room. And I would think, you know, if you, if you, if you aspire to a, spe um, um, a specific skill set, yeah. Um, the variables that you have to deal with in terms of education and knowledge are, are, are tend to be narrower. Maybe they're, they're more exact, but they tend to be narrower. Mm -hmm. I, you're in an ER room, anything can walk in the door. Yeah. And you have to kind of have, know a little bit about everything. Am I wrong in that? No, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, I think emergency physicians are like family physicians. You've got to know exactly, as you said, a little bit about everything and then have the ability to really be, be able to think fast and work on your feet, which is what I like about it. And it's very similar to hockey. You know, you have a team, uh, everyone has an ego that has to be managed. <laughs> you know, you're, you got to make decisions quick. It's the, the stakes are far higher and, and very different, but um, you never know what's going to happen. That's what I loved about hockey too. Every time I stepped on the ice, I never knew what was, you know, what could happen. Um, so that, that kind of a, adrenaline or intrigue about the the emergency room is what I, what I like and what I've always liked about it I, I used to shadow in the emergency room the last probably eight years of my career I would crack set father David Bauer arena and then I'd go over and work with a friend of mine who's an ER doc at the Foothills Hospital so um, I knew early on that that was kind of the type of medicine that I liked and that's exactly what I like about it Haley Wickenheiser is our guest, and um, since we've been talking about uh, COVID, it relates to the next topic that um, I want to discuss, and I know John does too, your position on the upcoming Tokyo Olympics. Uh, we'll address that when we continue after these messages. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Bob McCowan, John Shannon with you on the uh, program today with... Um, Haley Wickenheiser, you have been very vocal about um, your position on the Summer Olympics, specifically in Tokyo. But we have to go back more than a year or a year uh, uh, when you became quite vocal about your opinion that the Olympics should not be held in Tokyo, the Summer Games, and that Canada should not send a team. And I believe about a week after you made your public statement, um, the COC decided not to send uh, a team in the event that the Olympics were going to be held. Do you feel the same way? I think I know the answer, but do you feel the same way about the Olympics, I think, upcoming in Tokyo? Yeah, it's... <laughs> I mean, I, I think we still have a little bit of time before there's a hard call to say, you know, cancel the Olympics, but I just it's difficult like given the fact what I've seen through the past year uh you know so much suffering in the hospitals the numbers in Japan only 1.8 percent or so of the population vaccinated their their numbers are now on the rise again it's very hard for me to imagine 15,000 people coming from about 170 plus countries to a country like Japan and to host a, a games that's going to be without cases. I think we know there will absolutely be cases. The question I think is why and what is the risk tolerance that the Japanese government and the IOC have to host a games like this? And even is it the right thing to do amongst sort of the suffering that we've, that we've seen not only in Japan, but around the world. So I just struggle with it. I guess I come at it with a different lens. If I was an athlete, I would, I know myself, I would say I'm going at all costs, you know, I want to do mm. this. But, you know, you, you put on a bit of a different lens in the, in the position that I'm in and you see, you know, what's happening in the world. And, you know, there isn't really too many folks I've talked to in medicine that think it's a good idea. So I, I think if the numbers could dramatically reduce, it, it may be possible. I, if there's any entity in the world that could pull it off, it is the IOC. But I just, I really have, I really have doubts about it. 
is, so you talk about timeline. What 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 do you suggest the timeline would be before? We're supposed to have the games by the middle of July. Yeah, I, I, I sort of had said earlier, like the end by the end of May, we have to be able to make a call one way or the other on it. Um, I, I think that the IOC is going to forge ahead no matter what. I'm just concerned at what the the costs may may be and the follow may be. And I've also said that you know if Canadian athletes are if the Olympics are going to happen. Canadian athletes are going, then they should be fully vaccinated and, and well in advance. Um, it, I think it's the least that that we can do as a country to send these athletes over there. But um, I know there's there's a lot of athletes that are like, I don't care, I'm going. Like I probably would have had the mentality. And then there's a lot that have a lot of anxiety. Mm-hmm. And there's many events that still haven't finished their qualifiers yet. Uh, swimming, I think, is one of them. And um, there's a host of other track and field canceled an event. So it's, it's a bit of a dumpster fire for sure. And I'm just not sure how they're going to pull it all off. I'm, I'm, cur- I'm curious. Um, why not just, why wouldn't we just pull out? Why, if it's about, if it's about the safety of, in the end, it's about the safety of everyone, but yeah. you know, as Canadians, we have to be worried more about Canadians first. Yeah. Uh, why wouldn't we just say, okay, let's not go for the safety of our athletes. Well, I have to believe and trust that we would, if it got to that point. I mean, I think the COC was the first country in the world when I was sort of sound the cry last year to make the call. And I, and I know that they will do the right thing because when I had sent that tweet, I, I had had a conversation uh, just shortly after with Mark Tewksbury and Becky Scott, people that two athletes that I respect a lot at the IOC level. And shortly after then, Tricia Smith, who's the president of the Canadian Olympic Committee. And it wasn't a hard argument. It was just, you know, the, the, the way in which they wanted to approach it was different than the way that I did being a larger entity. So I think there's been a lot of careful consideration around this. I've certainly talked to the COC a number of times and uh, I think they're just trying to to balance everything and weigh the safety measures. And obviously, I don't know what changes day to day and on the ground in in Tokyo. We have to trust, I guess, that our Canadian doctors and officials wouldn't put our athletes into harm's way. But I guess I have to, you know, I feel that I have to ask the question so that you know to to keep that accountability because the the games is big money, politics, yeah. you know, all that stuff. Uh, just, I, do you do you sorry, just one one Bob, just one more Haley do you do you think the IOC is receptive to a lot of voices like yours? No, absolutely not. <laughs> no, um, uh, you know the IOC is not a democracy in my opinion. It's um, you know with the last time I spoke up, I I quickly got a call from uh, Secretary General saying. How could you do that? Um, and mm-hmm. my response to him was, I think history will tell us what the right answer is. But I knew that I, I couldn't um, I couldn't make any change by just trying to keep it internal because it would just be brushed aside and they were going to do what they were going to do. And so um, I think part of my reason for speaking up was to say, you know, it, it like something needs to change. And that was the only way I knew how. But they do not uh, receive dissenters or alternative opinions all that kindly at the IOC level, which really bothers me about it. Um, and it's something that's um, totally wrong with the culture of the IOC and the way in which it operates. It's uh, McCowan. It's Shannon on the program uh, for this um, Tuesday, not quite midweek. And uh, our special guest today, of course, needs no introduction, um, but we'll give him one anyway. Uh, number 99, uh, Wayne Gretzky is uh, with us. Nice to see you. It's been a while. Are things okay? Things are okay. You know, it's uh, like everyone else. Um, been kind of a miserable year, year and a bit. Um, obviously, uh, the pandemic's been horrible throughout the uh, entire world, but it seems to be... Uh, when you're close to it uh, in North America, uh, it's devastating for families, for people. It's just been horrible. And uh, I, I just can't imagine what some people have gone through, probably a lot worse than other people. Um, but all in all, if you got your health and uh, you have your family, things are good. Um, right now, things are okay. Uh, I assume you've had your shot or shots. I haven't, yeah, you know, um, I was really conscious of the line of people getting their shots. Um, There was no reason to jump in front of anyone. Um, 
at my age and relatively good health. Uh, we waited till it was our turn. It seems that uh, here in Missouri, almost everyone um, that I know of has gotten their shots. Uh, we got our first shots uh, two weeks ago. We're scheduled for our final shot tomorrow. Um, but hopefully we can get this uh, a little bit more rapid and up and running in Canada so we can get everyone vaccinated who wants to be vaccinated. We, um, um, I, I don't know about John, but uh, we haven't had the opportunity to chat since um, uh, your dad passed and I wanted to yeah. offer our condolences. And um, I know it I was a difficult time and it will continue to be a difficult time, but I just wanted to acknowledge that. Uh, thank, yeah, thank you. And um, it, was a, it was a crazy time. You know, I wanted to make it clear to people because so many people have passed because of COVID. I wanted people to understand and know he didn't pass from COVID. Although COVID probably had a hand in his declining health over the course of one year. Basically, we secluded him. He had underlying conditions with uh, brain aneurysm, a mild heart attack, and of course, um, um, Parkinson's. So, you know, I think that his life was to be around kids and be around his family and to be around hockey fans and go to hockey games. And in some ways, I think the pandemic, probably for a lot of other people also, killed his spirit. Mm. Um, so we got um, three or four days with him at home. Uh, when he first got out of the hospital, he broke his hip and broke his arm. And that sort of started the decline of his health. Um, and so we got to spend a few days with him when he was pretty coherent. We watched some hockey games in the living room with him. Uh, and then, unfortunately, he took a turn for the worse. But you know, I tell people this all the time. My dad was a man of great faith and uh, never missed church and really believes in life after death. But he also believed that you're only here once. And he fought his hardest to the very end to still stay here and be around his family and kids. Uh, my wife was teasing that your mom's up there telling him, I'm not taking you yet, uh, <laughs> which is very cute. Um, but, you know, he passed peacefully. Um, and he left a, a, a great mark in our country and uh, people were very kind to him. And I, I know he was kind to a lot of people. Yeah, I, the, the interesting thing, Wayne, is I wonder how many times over the last uh, two months that uh, you've uh, thought of picking up the phone and saying, hey, how you doing, Dad? That's the tough part, isn't it? Yeah, it's really hard. And today's day and age, too, you know, you, you, have, uh, you can see each other. Um, and we used to tease about it in the 80s because my dad worked for Bell Telephone. And one day we're going to be able to see each other on our telephones. Everybody thought you were crazy to even think that way. So I could actually see him and talk to him at home each and every day. I think for me, the hardest part was when my son Ty and his wife came to me and told me that they were going to have a baby and they were having a little girl. And the first reaction I had was to call my dad. And that was the first time it really hit me that he had passed on. And, you know, it's difficult. It's tough for anybody who loses a, a family member. You know, and I was saying to my friends, you know, you grow up as kids and your dad and your mom, they discipline you and they teach you the right way and they try to, try to guide you in a direction. And then there comes a point in time where they sort of put away that cap and you become best friends. And so for me, you know, my dad was my best friend and my closest friend, whether it was good or bad, he was the first call I would make. And you don't replace that. And so I tell people this all the time, that you only have one mom and you only have one dad. And make sure you cherish it each and every day. Interesting, Wayne. Um, you and I had a long talk uh, at the Joe Louis Arena uh, at Gordy's Memorial. Mm -hmm. uh, and you said uh, at that time, you know what? Uh, Gordy did so many things for so many people. Uh, and I know now it's it's my turn to do the same thing, to be that that person for the for the game. Mm -hmm. um, and in many ways, uh, you could use the same speech about your dad. You know, yeah, because you know, your dad had a role. Your dad had a huge role in our country. He had a huge role. I, I don't know. I can't remember the last hockey player that I've sort of ran into in this era. Um, who grew up in Southern Ontario or in Canada that said to me, 
you know, I was eight years old, your dad took me through your basement. I, I'm willing to say that most guys who played hockey have been through his basement and he loved doing that. Um, I was telling a cute story. Um, my friends, my wife's friend, who uh, Holly Robinson Pete, who was on the show to talk, uh, they were honoring Justin Bieber with his 16th birthday and it was going to be a full hour on the show. And she had called Jen and said, can Wayne come down and be a surprise guest? And so I, anyway, long story short, I went down there and surprised him and walked on stage to, to do the show for a few minutes. And the first thing he said to me, you know, when I was eight years old, my hockey team went through your dad's basement. So I always said, gosh, anybody not been through my dad's basement? But, you know, it was like a monument to my dad. My dad loved it. He started, he started collecting stuff when I was five years old, my first hockey jacket my first hockey stick, my first trophy, um, my first jersey. Um, and he didn't collect it to say, you know what, one day I'm going to sell this. One day I'm going to make money off of this. He never did that. He just had this sense of, you know, I want to have this stuff. I want to enjoy it. And he didn't know at 8, 9, 10 if I was going to make the NHL, nor my brothers or my sister. But he collected everything, her track and field trophies my brother's trophies, championship trophies from tournaments. He just, that's what he loved to do. His family was everything to him. And people in Canada meant the world to my dad. It's as simple as that. And I don't think my dad had any enemies because he treated everybody with respect. Well, he is known as the most famous hockey dad in the world. And um, uh, obviously, he, you had an influence in that. And yet, mm -hmm. he became known to people as Walter, um, yeah, not, and, not necessarily as your, your dad, Wayne. Yeah, and you know, when we spent the 20 days together with my siblings and the grandchildren, I, I, I started to reflect and sitting in the room and telling the, the grandchildren, you know, I just really realized this, that you guys didn't know grandpa uh, before his brain aneurysm. Mm. You guys all were sort of born after him. You, you knew my dad after his aneurysm. And my dad always said everything in life happens for a reason. He went through a dreadful, horrible five years, but he came out on the other side. And his personality in some ways changed. And by that, I mean, pre-91, he was very shy, very quiet, didn't really want to do interviews kind of stayed in the corner and just, he was very shy about it. When he came out of his aneurysm, a lot of things changed in his personality. And one of them was he became very much more outgoing. Uh, I can remember one time in um, around 1998, I was home and he was sitting at the coffee table and my mom was bringing him tea and he was writing a speech. He was going to a luncheon. And he said to my mom, and he always called her Phil, he said, Phil, we just sit here and listen to my my speech and he started to tell his speech and my mom got up in the middle of it and walked away and he looked at me and he goes can you can you believe this they're paying me to go do speaking engagements and she just walks away from me <laughs> so you know his, his personality really changed for the person he became and it was good for him because it made his life more enjoyable he was much more relaxed he wasn't as stressed um and he loved being walter gretzky and he was so proud of being a Canadian and being from Brantford, and people treated him just tremendously. Well, here we are, here, witness to it. Here we are, we're talking to a guy that holds NH 60 NHL records, and we're talking about your dad. I mean, so. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, uh, but I, I always tease him that he didn't get any goals in the NHL, I can honestly tell you that. <laughs> uh, it, 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 on, on that, on that topic, um, one of the special days of my career uh, and I know it was of yours, was your last game at Madison Square Garden. Yeah. Uh, and one of the things, there's two things that come to mind for me. First of all, you and Bob Cole hugging in the hallway. I have a yeah. bias. That was a, great, that was a great moment for all of us. Uh, and then the, the drive that you had said to your dad, I'm going, we're going to go to the rink and we're going to do it the same way we always did it. And that was we're going to drive together. Yeah, you know, I can't even, I couldn't sort of write down or script 
how I wanted the last couple of days to go, but it was as perfect as it could be. Other than we didn't win the game, but right. that was at that point um, immaterial. But, you know, the day before we went for dinner, um, my mom and dad, our family, and my wife, and we had a really nice dinner. And I said to him at the dinner, I said, you know, the very first game, um, you drove me to my first game. And I said, tomorrow I want to do something really special. Um, I want you to drive with me to the rink. And he said, okay. Uh, he said, what time are you going to leave? And it was a three o'clock game. And sometimes he forgot a little bit, but he, I, he said to me, what time are we leaving? I said, you know, I like to get there four or five hours before. I always got there really early because I could get in the locker room and nobody could call me, nobody could talk to me. And I just kind of sit there with the trainers and just sort of get ready for the game. So I said, we're leaving at 10 o'clock. Now, 10 o'clock on a Sunday morning in Manhattan is really not a lot of traffic compared to Monday through Friday. So we had a really nice drive to the game, got to the garden, went up to the locker room. And my dad would never go in the locker room unless they said, come on, you can come in. He'd always just sort of stop. And he'd stand outside and I said, Dad, you can come in the locker room. There's nobody even here for another two hours, so come on. So he came in, he just sat around with the trainers and I was signing sticks for all the guys and doing things to get ready for the festivities. Um, and after a game, <laughs> Dan said to me, how was the ride to the rink? I said, I gotta tell you, historically it was a tremendous ride, but it was the worst drive of my life. And she said to me, why is that? I said, he spent the entire 20 minutes telling me, you know, you can play one more year. <laughs> so <laughs> I said, no, I said, dad, I said, I got nine goals this entire season. I think it's time for me to move on. <laughs> so that, it was a great day. With Wayne Gretzky. We have all um, lost family members. And one of the things that has occurred to me is that, and maybe, maybe it's just me, but um, when you lose somebody that's that's that close to you, I think you 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 try and remember as much as you possibly can in the ensuing days. You try and uh, remember all the things that you hadn't thought about for years and years. And and I, for me, invariably, there's always one moment that I can't get out of my head. It, it and it could be at any point in 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 their life. Was there one of those for you, Wayne? Oh, there was a lot, but from a hockey point of view, my very first year, I was five and I played on a 10-year-old hockey team. And I remember like it was yesterday and we had our team dinner and dinner banquet. There's the players, 15 players and parents. And, you know, it was one of those sort of hot dogs and French fries and uh, the coach would get up and thank the players. And at that point in time, they handed out trophy, best defenseman, most valuable player, leading scorer. I think there was a most improved player. And I didn't win a trophy. And I was I just turned six and I was in the car and we were driving to the house. And he could tell that I was not disappointed, but I was just sort of stunned, I guess is probably a good word. And when you're six years old and you feel like the world's crumbling, and I, he said, is anything wrong? I said, I, I didn't win a trophy. Now I got one goal the entire year. <laughs> I don't know what trophy I was, thought I was gonna win. Um, and he turned to me, I'll never forget, it was like yesterday, he put his hand on my knee and he said, one day you're gonna win a lot of trophies, don't worry about it. And I remember I got out of the car and I felt like a million dollars. And you know, he didn't know, he just, he was being a good parent, parent trying to cheer up the six year old son who was devastated that he didn't win an award. And I remember it like it was yesterday. And uh, here we go. Bob McCowan, John Shannon for this uh, lovely day, a uh, warmer day, not as warm as it is in Florida, I'm guessing, though. Uh, joining us from there, he needs no introduction, but I'll give him one anyway. Scotty Bowman is uh, with us. Mr. Bowman, weather's good there, I assume. Yeah, we got another. Uh cold wave coming friday it's going to go down in the 50s oh my god <laughs> bundle up oh. that means no shorts scotty no shorts oh no it doesn't change that's during the night i'm sure uh we know you um you watch hockey um at night all night um at least a couple of games a night isn't it well sometimes about six or eight <laughs> no I, you get about three in because i don't i don't like jumping around bob i try to pick I try to pick a, a game that I'd like to see, and uh, 
course, the late game, you don't, there's not as much of a choice, but, you know, sometimes 10.30, it ends at 1 o'clock. How much are you uh, watching this uh, Northern Division, Scotty? I watch it a lot because, uh, you know, uh, well, all the divisions, uh, John, is, is, we've kind of sorted out uh, with uh, the top three. You know, it's, it's, it's the same in, in all the divisions. I mean, it's Winnipeg now, Edmonton, and Toronto. Are, but Montreal's got so many games to play. It's going to be a battle. I mean, you know, for to get uh, get all those the only games. W- the only way the only way that it it works is if they win them all. You know that. No, you're right. Look, look, look what's happened to Dallas. Look at that. Dallas yeah. had hordes of games in hand too, right? Yeah, it's that they they've really suffered. You're right, and now they got a lot of games. I think I saw Montreal had is it right? Twenty five games in forty three nights. Yeah, yeah. Wow, that's tough. They have six games in hand on Calgary. <laughs> Yeah, I was thinking about the hockey. You know, not that it, a lot of people don't have a, a, a summer, but this will be two summers in a row. I mean, we're, that there'll be no summer, and then because they, they want to start next year, a clean. They want to try to start a clean slate, but they're going to play into July, so it's going to be a, a mixed-up deal. But when you're making a lot of money, I guess you have to do it. <laughs> Well, but there's a presumption here that COVID is going to be under control by the fall, and we've sort of been operating with that. And uh, now we're seeing spikes here in Canada, and there are spikes in the U.S. as well. Um, you know, in spite of the fact that people are getting the shot, um, people aren't behaving. Things are still open, although BC is shut down. Have they not, John? Or, or as of or yesterday, Kutu? they till April nineteenth, they 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 basically closed the door, indoor dining, lots of. Uh, gatherings over more than 10 people you know whistlers uh, basically closed down to, until until april 19th yeah hockey has not traditionally though scotty um rested players uh for extended periods even you know occasionally i mean it does happen in some in, in some instances but it's not part of the culture to give players um a night off well if you were coaching today given the kind of schedule that Montreal is facing over the next six weeks, would you be inclined to rest players? Well, I, I, I never got involved much with resting. I, I found out Bob, even down, down the stretch when you were uh, getting ready for the playoffs, the players, they, they didn't want, I mean, I, I took their ice time down a little bit, but they wanted to get in the routine and keep going. And I mean, of course that's the way I was brought up because I could just give you a quick, quick story, <laughs> a quick story about St. Louis Blues. Uh, I think it was in my uh, second year because uh, Jacques Plant was uh, was was with us, and uh, we we were well ahead of uh, the next team, and we had a, a West Coast two games, Oakland, Los Angeles, and uh, L.A. was was not. They were pretty in, uh, ready to to finish. Uh, they were in the playoffs. Oakland wasn't. We went to LA and it was the last game of the year. We and uh, Jacques was injured, and I was going to play our back. We had a third goalie used to travel with us, a young kid. We had three young kids, and two of them played in Kansas City, and we kept one as a practice goalie. And uh, I got a call in the morning of the of the game, the last game of the season, from the president, Clarence Campbell, just saying, um, "I expect you to play your strongest lineup tonight." You understand that, Mr. Bowman? I said, "I do, Mr. Campbell." <laughs> And I had a bit of a dilemma because Plant was injured and I wanted to rest Glenn Hall. And uh, I did go to Glenn and I said, you know, Glenn, I'm in a tough spot because we, we can't rest players. We couldn't rest players in those days. The president Campbell was right on you. I mean, you, you had to be careful. And, uh, but we, I haven't rested many players, but I mean, I think what you'd probably want to do now, if you're one of those teams that's in the top three spots, at least there's pretty well, we can pretty well see three, three, three teams in each, in each division that are going to make it. Um, you'd probably be careful if they had injuries. I would be careful about taking a chance because what hang if you finish one, two, or three, or four, you're going to play. A, you know, you're going to play a pretty good team. And when you get to, when when you when you get into this type of year, time of year, and we're going to call this the race for a playoff spot. Mm-hmm. Um, how much would you practice? Because that's to me with games every second day, it's the practice time that's gone. You, you and you didn't, you, you didn't, you didn't want to practice, did you? Well, I liked it. I mean, I, I liked the practices. I, I, I mean, it was different in my day, but I, 
I, I was just brought up with that, that you, you play like you practice. And I was pretty stickler. I didn't like long practices. I liked quick practices. I liked just giving a, a nice spinner out there, get a few good drills in, get your power play going, whatever you want to do. But no, I, I, I think now it's, they're not practicing. I mean, they're doing a lot of video now. I, I'm not involved in that, but they're doing video uh, sessions with the, with the, with the players. And, uh, but it's, it's all, you're right. It's, it, I mean, an interesting will be the Florida Panthers now with the loss of, oh, yeah. uh, I mean, they have a nice cushion. Is, is there anything that's, is a cushion good enough? I mean, it's hard to say. Some team could, Nashville's moving along pretty good right now. They're playing, they're playing like they were, people thought they were at the beginning of the year. But, uh, you know, it'll be, a, it'll be a good observation on the Panthers if they could, because he was such an important player. And Joel, Joel really, uh, he's got a, he's got a defense core that joins the rush all the time. They're, they're, it's a pretty good system because, uh, you know, if, you, if you're a defenseman, you go up on the rush and it's up to a forward to, to replace you. And they have a lot of speed, but he was an important player. I mean, he turned his game right around from what he was uh, as a rookie. It was great, but last couple of years, he hasn't been able to do it. You're, you're talking about Aaron Eckblad, who had surgery and yeah. with a, a, a fractured yeah. leg, uh, a game in Dallas. Uh, you, you saw him, uh, you, you talked about uh, his game. He had gone to another level. He really had, hadn't he? It was this was the kid we expected to see after that first year. Yeah, they're they they've really attained. Uh, they, they've got a lot of speed. I mean, it's just it's been a great story because I got to know Joel, and he's an excellent coach. And you know, it, it, like all coaches, uh, sometimes you run out of run out of time with teams. And but he's turned that around. I mean, Verhage, that player they picked up from. Uh, from Tampa, boy, he's he's got a lot of speed. I know people that know him, and there's a good illustration. They said he started in the East Coast League, and and his problem was he he wasn't that fast enough, and now he's as fast as you can get. So, hope for anybody that doesn't matter if they, how, how slow they are, they seem to get faster. With Scotty Bowman, is Florida the biggest surprise so far that you've seen? Oh, sure. I mean, for what I mean, I had them in the playoffs. They're battling for the playoffs, but now they're battling for first place. And uh, I mean, when no, I think another team that's really come up uh, from the ashes really is uh, Los Angeles. The Kings have, have seemed to. I mean, you know, uh, I know Todd McClellan. I mean, he didn't do it in in Edmonton, but uh, you know, uh, I think that uh, their their veteran core has had a rebirth. When you look at all those players like Brown and. Doughty and Kopitar and even Carter, they, they've now taken the mantle. I mean, usually it's tough when those older players have won, and they've won cups too. They won two cups, those guys. And uh, so, I mean, that's been a good story. And, uh, uh, you know, uh, on the surprise list, uh, Winnipeg really surprised me oh. that uh, they could, they've lost a lot of defensemen in the last three, four years, but they, they see it. They got the goaltending. Uh, it's been, one of the top three for sure. Uh, Alabama's been terrific, and they're 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 really a great offensive team now. And uh, I'm glad, I'm happy for them because I like Chevy. I, he's done a good job. You know, he's got a limited uh, budget there sometimes, although they're spending out of the cap. But he's he's done a great job. And Paul Maurice, you know, I, I think he's probably the most underrated coach in the league because I coached against him in 2002. We don't really, mm -hmm. that's 19 years ago. And he was coaching before that. So uh, he, he's got them playing the right way. And uh, they're going to be, they're going to be a pretty good, you get that kind of goaltending. I'm su totally surprised where they, their defense core, how they could, how they could do what they, what they're doing. You know, the, uh, the interesting thing about Winnipeg is, is that they have, I would argue everybody talks top six and bottom six forwards. I don't know why, but they do. Uh, but they have, they have, no, I don't know. I mean, who decides that the, that, that the third line isn't as good as the second line, but that that's what Paul has. And Paul has interchangeable, such interchangeable parts, you know, they lost in Calgary on the weekend with Wheeler playing with Stasty and Shifley. Ah, let's change it. Then we're going to put, we're going to put Shifley with Connor and, and Ehlers. And all of a sudden Eureka last night, they were brilliant in playing yeah, I, I guess. I get mixed up between, I don't know why, I get mixed up between Cop and Connors. You know, I mean, <laughs> no, but uh, Connors is probably the most underrated player in the league. I mean, you know, for production, he gives them. And like last night, I watched that Calgary game and 
you know, they just got the scoring that, that can make it. They, they, they can put the puck in the net. They got, it's, it's really a, a good team to watch. And you're right. And uh, they, they're going to give a good run to somebody. I mean, Toronto and, and, uh, and Winnipeg and Edmonton and Edmonton, they, they, you know, like those coaches like Dave Tippett, he's been around a long time and he's, he's you know, what they have is they, they've been able to get their defense now. Barry, Barry's done a good job. Uh, Barry's done a good job for them. And, and when you take uh, Nurse now with, with his 11 goals, uh, and that's well, what that's they, they, Scotty, 12. 12 now, is that what they Wait, need? One last night. Yeah. yeah, they need that. They need that um, defense core because you know, the way McDavid and Dreisaitl can handle games, they need that defense, that core coming up. And that's what they did last night. And, of course, in overtime, but three on three. I I, uh, I know Dave Tepper, and he's, he's got that team playing the right way if their goaltending can, you know, Smith, Smith made a big save on Matthews to, to preserve that uh, chance to win. You guys were talking about line shuffling. Um my recollection of the days when you were coaching Scotty was that, I mean, lines became famous. They had nicknames and they stayed yeah. together, but was there, did you do line sh much line shuffling when you were, were coaching or is that a, a kind of a, almost a new thing? I always tried to keep at least two, uh, two players together. I did change players. I wanted to put the players. I think it's important. It's not as, it's not as easy now because the, the length of shift and uh, doesn't seem to be the, the mantra that a lot of teams were the, the older coaches will be concerned who plays against who. But I think Bob, the thing is I always wanted to put a player, whatever his ability is, whether he's a defensive player or an offensive player, put him in a, a position that he can succeed. So, I mean, if, if you've got a top offensive player, you, you got to try to put him. you know, I mean, if he's been, you know, really handy hand, handicapped by the good defensive forward on the other team, maybe shift them around a little bit and uh, you just can't give the other team everything they want. And sometimes teams now they can, the, 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 the experienced coaches, they, they can get what they want because not everybody worries about, and, and it's hard to change now on the fly because if you do, you're at a disadvantage, you lose your forecheck. And also you could end up, uh, you know, they don't, the shorts, the shifts are so short now, 30, 40 seconds shifts. And uh, if you're changing on the fly all the time, you, you're not playing the game. Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at lifelock.com slash aware. So there you go. Some of the best of uh, the Bob McCowan podcast from the past 12 months. As uh, we take a little vacation here. Much well, to well, the chagrin of the audience, I'm sure. Well, no, no, not much of a vacation uh, when you think of what's going on in the world, Bob. Still, uh, but you know what? It's a good time to spend your family. Good time to uh, have some some quiet time, enjoy some eggnog and some festive spirit. Uh, happy holidays to y'all from John and I, and uh, we'll see you in the first week of January. Goodbye, everybody.